for those big organizations, that's where their thinking needs to be. What and where and how do we deliver value? And is that going to last? You know, what could disrupt that? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today, I'm in conversation with and learning from Eleanor Winton. She's written a fantastic book called Disruption Game Plan. And we have a sparkling conversation about some great stuff about how to spot disruption, why it's hard to spot. And notwithstanding, you look at the blockbuster stuff and just say, how could they not have spotted Netflix? Maybe that's not relevant. But what we find from Eleanor is what you can do, how you can sit and think about the future. At the end, she's got a tip for something to do tomorrow. This is a lady who spent a lot of her time in businesses that you wouldn't have thought of as particularly innovative. She was an investigator of conduct in the Scottish government, and she was part of KPNG's financial crime forensic function. But whatever her background we've got some fantastic stories. She tells us some fantastic stories about clients she's worked with or even ways to look at different challenges. I really like the Scots whiskey, Scotch whiskey, a disruptive technology in Scotch whiskey. So instead of spending 25 years in barrels, you could be buying cheap whiskey and drinking a great product in 24 hours. And so we get into the, where's the value? How are customers thinking about value? And that's where companies get disrupted because the way they think about the value is not how customers see it. And there's not a real direct connection between often the people running the business and their customers. So a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. My name's Eleanor Winton. Uh, I'm a consultant and really what I help clients to do is to imagine uh, and often to really stretch their thinking about what the future looks like for them and for their business, uh, which is obviously going to be full of threats and opportunities. And then I really help them to develop strategies in response to that. And so that strategy is to both innovate and mitigate in response to the future that they see to make that really practical. Um, and I'm also the author of The Disruption Game Plan, or one of the authors of The Disruption Game Plan, which is now out. Available from all good booksellers. Available from all good booksellers. And uh, and you got an audio version coming out, or are you just sticking with print? No, not yet. We're just waiting to see. We're just we're only one month in, so we're waiting to see where we get to with it. But what we are doing is um, we're we're launching a lot of hybrid consulting products off the back of it. So uh, again, lockdown dividend really uh, was rethinking the way that we go to market, which was previously all about being in rooms with people, which is obviously really great fun and we really miss it. Um, but to offer better value to clients, actually 
turning some of it into online things that they can do in their own time and then maximizing those sort of interventions is the direction that we're going in. So, yeah, that's how we're using the book, really. Okay. See, when clients call you, are they grappling with something that they are now uncomfortable with? Or are they saying, frankly, we can't see any disruption, which makes us even more nervous because there must be some? Which category do they tend to fall into? It's a real mixed bag. So we work across uh, really all sectors and industries. So, and, and obviously, as you know, the disruption happens at different rates and different paces across different sectors and industries. So, so some people honestly come to us and say, oh, we just want to hear some really interesting stuff about the future. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's as open as that. And then the, the kind of the shock and awe happens in the moment where we kind of do that conversation. Um, but sometimes, yeah, as you say, it's that there are there are kind of weak signals in the market of change. Maybe there's a new competitor who's doing something that sort of doesn't make sense, but is interesting enough to have caught the client's attention. Um, sometimes it's that they are thinking about making an acquisition, for example, or they're, they're going to be the subject of an acquisition potentially, and it's an opportunity to sort of reimagine what their business is about and what they offer. So a real mixed bag of stuff that comes in. And are you talking to people about, direct competition or sort of parallel substitution bit of both so sometimes it you know again it's it really depends on the the client but sometimes it could be a new competitor that is i mean you see that in retail all the time obviously so they're kind of offline to online that's a really natural example where the new competitor just runs that completely uh, online business model and that's where they're starting to think well hang on where does the value sit in this equation sometimes it's somebody doing something odd if you think about the mining industry we've done quite a bit of work in the mining industry you know if you're pulling diamonds out of the ground uh, and there's you know businesses like diamond foundry appearing which are making diamonds in labs to the consumer at the moment that's probably a sort of edge signal and perspective maybe most people still want to get an authentic mined diamond but there's a signal that over time that might change and perhaps there's a shift in customer expectations so so they bring us in to say well where do we need to be in that in that picture how quickly do you think it might change those sorts of questions particularly when the markup from wholesale to retail is five times. Indeed, indeed. And it's, you know, I think I think when you look at any industry in that way, when, when you think from kind of left to right, you know, from, from the kind of the core resource that we use to drive the industry and the, and the products that we create through to the customer on the other end, if you were to look really hard at whatever that resource is, and imagine that it was gone or replaced or different or somebody was doing it differently, that completely transforms the way that you that you have to think about the industry. So, so even though it's, that's happening in you know places like mining, for example, it will happen everywhere over time. So it's a really helpful way to think. Do you have a favorite sort of help the client see around a corner moment? So I think the thing I find that is probably unhelpful to clients is talking about the kind of, oh God, shouldn't they have seen it in the blockbuster sort of thing when you and I talked a little bit about this <laughs> offline. First of all, because many of those stories are, are repeated so often that they become kind of, they just glance off us now, don't they? So one of the things that, that I found helpful and that both Ruth and I uh, do a lot is to try to create an experience around and again, you and I talked about this briefly earlier, but for something like disruption in the drinks industry, you know, there are a number of products that they're kind of non-alcoholic products that 
five, 10 years ago, you, you would have laughed out of the room because you thought, well, why would you ever want to drink a non-alcoholic whiskey or gin? We would get that and have it in the room and, and do the conversation with that thing in the room and really get people to experience it and talk about how it might change things. Because what we found is that actually the one of the biggest barriers to thinking about the future or reimagining the future is that we tend to just read about it or hear about it. We don't really experience it until it's too late. And then we only, we start to understand it then. We help clients see around corners by helping them to experience the thing where possible or an example of it. That's really interesting because I was talking to Nick Marks, who we collaborate with. He's the founder of Friday Pulse, who do staff engagement software. And he was saying that one of the things that human beings are in, find really difficult to do is to tell you how they're going to feel about something they haven't yet experienced. And so he was saying, look, don't ask your staff how they're going to feel about coming back to work. Get them back to work and then ask them how they felt. Because frankly, they will have no idea how they feel. Yeah. And whatever they say will be completely different to how they actually feel. So don't bother don't bother asking them, just get them back. It's such a stretch of the imagination, isn't it? You know, we, we ask a lot of people to, to you know, people who we've employed to do a particular job, you know, that, that probably is inward and downward facing. We're asking a lot of them to kind of turn upward and outward and completely reimagine what could change. You know, we've got to help people along that journey, make it kind of fun and engaging rather than a sort of a, a kind of scary story about all the change that's going to happen. You know, we have to try to bring people on the journey. We have made mistakes with that in the past with one of the things I have talked to clients a lot about in the past is, is food, you know, the future of food. I used to have these little kind of um, insect protein bars. They were launched on Kickstarter. They were made by you know, a couple of young guys in the US who were kind of saying, well, whey protein is really bad for the environment. It's bad for the cows. You know, we should be using insect protein. So they made these protein bars and we... Um, used to take those along to workshops and again, get people to taste them, talk about them, think about the carbon footprint, the water footprint, all of that stuff. Um, but we also used to take along some kind of really gross things that we never actually expected people to eat. So, you know, giant freeze-dried water bugs and things like that. Right. And just occasionally a brave client would, would just chomp down on one, you know, and you'd be in the workshop and they'd be at the back sort of tearing into this kind of water bug. And that actually, that, you know, whilst it was very funny for everybody in there, it was sort of horrifying for those people. But even the experience of doing something that's kind of strange and different and fun and engaging and a bit surprising does help you to have a conversation that's different from that really analytical conversation that we all want to have when we get into a meeting, particularly of a senior team. So, so just changes things up a little bit, makes it more interesting. Do you ever go and the client says, I need some help thinking about the future? And then they just go, thanks very much. <laughs> we'll just do that blockbuster Kodak gap. Yeah. And we'll just go headlong into the future as if you'd never spoken to us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, do you know, um, that was my own employer at one time <laughs> that we, when we first did this piece of work at KPMG and, you know, this is a, a sort of well-known story at KPMG, so it won't be a problem for me to tell the story. But when, when we first did this piece of work of looking outside at what the future would be for us and brought it back in, I think, you know, the the leadership team there kind of on one level totally got it, but then the the scale of the change that's required, you could see the kind of 
the cogs turning and people thinking, oh, you know, I'm not sure I'm quite willing to accept that we need to change that much. So that moment of excitement in the room, that, that's one of the biggest challenges for us, actually, and for any businesses, is taking that excitement and open-mindedness and then really kind of coding it into what happens next because there's a real risk otherwise that you you fall out the other side of that and we, we call it the kind of jazz hands effect you know because this stuff can sometimes be more entertainment than anything else you know it can be a really <laughs> fun way to entertain your board for a day uh, and that's what happens to it if you don't plan how you're going to then implement it out of the back and you have to make that really practical and actionable out of the back so yes yeah, we definitely get clients who I mean, we also have clients who you know, bring us back every year uh, and don't do anything with it <laughs> in the interim. But you can see over time that the the mindset is shifting. So, I, you know, all of these things are, it really depends on on what you find when you get there. But, you know, we're, we're open to all, we would never berate somebody for, for not doing what they said they were going to do, but we, we try to help them make those changes. What was the change at KPMG that told the organization they needed to prepare for? Well, so um, one of the things was sustainability reporting. So so we did this process back in 2010, I guess. Uh, yeah, 2010. Um, so no one was really doing sustainability reporting at that time. Some of the kind of carbon measurement, water impact measurement, all that sort of stuff was, was folded in with that. We were looking at uh, a sort of trip advisor for consulting. So, you know, as we know with any industry where someone is able to peek inside the black box, then suddenly all the stuff that you've been charging a fortune for clients start to question why that might be and could they potentially do it themselves. So so we'd come back with quite a radical proposition to TripAdvisor ourselves, if you know what I mean. I can understand why that, from, from a risk point of view, that, that felt sort of terrifying. But there were all sorts of things about the way that we went to market, about automating elements of how we did things, about thinking differently about hierarchy, all of those things. And so it was a, a huge, a huge potential change that we were asking people to commit to. So of course, whilst there was great enthusiasm, it didn't all happen immediately. It's, it's happened kind of over time, um, most of the stuff. But but that's the challenge with all of these things, isn't it? I think you can never expect to, and again, that's the point of thinking about a sort of scenario-based view of the future. You know, it's tempting to say, well, we'll have a, we'll come up with a good scenario and a bad scenario. We'll aim to get to the good scenario. But what you really need to think about is what, what's the range of possible futures what path do we want to chart what path are we best qualified to chart rather than what are all the opportunities for everyone let's just go after all of them because that's just it's too much change to to take on again my expectation is that human beings are very poor at spotting what could turn out to be an exponential change and they just and actually the th then that's because when you look at things that are exponential they don't look like they're changing exponentially at the beginning. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's, I think you called it a weak signal. There's, you know, so there's, you know, you might end up with that trip advisor for consulting as a future end state. And you might absolutely be right that that's the end state. But the thing is, it, it might take 10 years. But if you don't change now, you're toast. But it's really hard to get people to say, well, because, you know, you're not saying I absolutely completely guarantee that this version of the future is coming and then they're like okay well what if we didn't change you know would I, you know the ceo says well i might have retired by then or some of these other senior managers again they're saying well you know you know am i still going to be here will i have changed jobs and there's all that sort of personal inertia as well about 
because this is hard. This is going to be hard to change. This is it. So much of the way that we think about the future is really absolute, right? So, so much of it is around predictions, you know. And um, there's an economist called Andrew Scott who, who wrote a book called The Hundred Year Life, which is brilliant. But he has a great, a great kind of way of putting it, which is, you know, if you if you're going to make a prediction about the future, never give a number, never give a date. And if you've given a number and a date, never go back to where you made the prediction. <laughs> you can never be caught, you know. And, and he's absolutely right, because if you look back to the 60s, that was a great and amazing time of, of really being imaginative about what the future might hold and this incredibly exciting time where there's loads, again, this real tipping point around technology. And so that's one of the barriers that we, we have to break down when we work with clients always, is that this isn't about making a prediction about where we want to be and then just battering ahead to that pathway because we know you're going to get knocked off, of course. So so what we talk about are kind of three types of information to take account of. There's what we call data today, which is which is really helpful, obviously, to tell you about today and yesterday. But, but as you look slightly longer term, it, it really tails off in terms of its usefulness. So, so the gap that you then have to fill is the trend gap. So that, that the trend information is stuff that tells you about the kind of near to further further term so kind of maybe you know depending on what you're looking at that might be anything from two months out to two to five years out you know but you've got to think about how what the interplay between those two is and then the third category and i'm I'm drawing a graph with my hands there is a graph to go along with i don't think you share this it's not very helpful if people are just on audio sorry about that they'll have to buy the book (laughs) yes but the third type of information is is those weak signals and so to, to really be effective, you have you have to be able to put all three types of information together because otherwise you are in danger of saying, I really want and believe this thing to happen, so we'll just go hell for leather at that thing. When of course change is constant, right? So so you have to really it has to really be about the interplay of those three things. And so so that's when we always say to clients, you know, this is really about it's ensuring that you've got a vision uh, and then a strategy that sits behind that and then a set of tactics that sit behind. And I know that's really obvious and there'll be a lot of people listening to this thinking, well, I mean, I could pick up any business book and it would tell me that. But but so many of the businesses that we work with forget about the vision part. And then when the strategy then doesn't work, they have to sort of start again. So, you know, a vision has to be bigger and broader and more inclusive than, than the strategy. The other thing that you talk about is value creation. And I think clients so often don't know what value they're creating or how the value that they're creating is different to a competitor, maybe. And we, again, we were talking before we started recording about Scotch whiskey, Japanese whiskey, or, or even the charred wood innovation that you were talking about recently. Yeah, absolutely. And so so there's a couple of interesting stories to tell there, I guess. So we know that the whiskey industry in Scotland has been around for seven, eight hundred years, something like that, a huge amount of time. And actually, in all of that time, no one has ever really thought about the value because it's just been coded in. You know, the value is in the the liquid in the barrels, in the sheds, you know, for kind of 25 years. And that's been fine. That's been accepted. No one's ever challenged that. But of course, in subsequent years, as you said, Dom, you know, you, you've had the kind of the Japanese end of the market and produced some really great whiskies <laughs> um, on their own terms that are highly competitive. But you've also had innovations like uh, the whiskey element, which you were talking about, which is effectively reversing the, the whiskey production process. So instead of putting the liquid in the barrel and having that really slow period of osmosis, 
you put the barrel or a stick of it inside a bottle of whiskey and you go from you know 25 years to produce a delightful single malt through to 24 hours to turn something cheap from the corner shop into something really tasty again they you know there'll be lots of people listening who think well i would never I would never buy that. I would always buy the authentic. And that's true. Of course, there's a big segment of the market that, that would never buy it. That just doesn't appeal to. But there are new segments, you know, new areas of value in the market where actually that's quite an exciting thing to experiment with, you know, to get your friends around and, and produce your own whiskey, <laughs> you know, that you created 24 hours, 24 hours ago, you know. I remember thinking to myself, I love books. Books are amazing. They smell, they're tactile, they're great. And then I went e-reader and mostly now it's audio. And so it's that thing again, where people can't actually tell you how they're going to feel until they experience it. And when they do, it's very different. Nobody was sitting there saying, when the iPhone came out, Nokia, and most people who didn't have one said, yeah, but it's a crap phone. And it was a bit crap. But then so that it fed their, it fed their prejudice for having made the right decision themselves. Or BlackBerry said, well, you know, it hasn't got a keyboard. And then, you know, Nokia's disappeared and Blackberry's disappeared. And now 10 or 11 years ago, the iPhone came out. And, it's, and now, you know, the iPhone, then the iPod, the iPhone, and then the, the iPad. And now, you know, you would never, you know, it's almost like people's, there's sort of a tipping point where people are sort of in the, the vast majority are in denial. And then the vast majority are completely sold. Yeah, right. And and that's where that velocity point comes in, exactly as you're describing. You know, the I think we've probably all seen those, those charts that those line charts showing when you know iPad was launched and that kind of skyrocketing line of sales you know that that actually the the other Apple products were kind of gearing us up for this thing and as soon as we realized that actually bloody hell this is pretty good then bang the changes happened and it's it's too late you know so I think again that's another thing that we try to bring to life for clients is how quickly that change can happen. But to be able to understand how quickly the change can happen, you really need to imagine, you need to use your imagination. And, and so for, for most leaders in business, we didn't get to the top of our organizations by being imaginative. <laughs> we got there by being <laughs> decisive and, you know, in control and results, you know. And, and so that's, it's, again, it's this transition. I mean, there's, there's a great, Thomas Friedman put it really, really well when he said, you know, we're moving from a, a world in which up until kind of the 90s, IQ was enough to be a leader. You just had to be smart, you know. And in the 90s, we thought, oh, hang on, wouldn't it be nice if, if leaders were nice people as well? So, you know, we said, let's have some emotional intelligence in there thank goodness and actually now what we're talking about is is leaders having to have iq plus eq plus cq so curiosity quotient which is this ability to to kind of be constantly learning even though you've achieved the peak of your career you know to, to still be looking for new ways to deliver value in in that role that you're into the business to your stakeholders to the world at large and i think you know if we particularly when we look at and again we talk about this in the book but they you know, our, our real platform for everything we do is that we've got eight, eight years to fix uh, the climate crisis, not fix it, just actually mitigate it. So any leader today needs to be curious about how what they're doing helps to address that problem. And that's a shift, you know, it's a complete responsibility shift for leaders from inside to outside, which is huge. Thinking about that Scotch whiskey innovation, the whiskey element then. So, you know, if I'm Diageo, what should I do? Should I ignore it? Do I do I embrace it? Do it? Do I make it a Diageo product? Do I invest in a startup so that I've got some skin in the game? 
It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I think we've seen the way that big organizations respond, which tends to be acquisitive. And I don't think that's necessarily the best strategy. It might be part of your strategy. Um, but, you know, in the case of, I mean, you, you're probably familiar with Dollar Shave Club as well. So that was another mm-hmm. fantastic innovation. Uh, for those that don't know it, um, it was a kind of, a, again, a small startup that said, why on earth are you paying for a Lubri strip and a battery in your razor? You know, when a, a simple razor that's just really good quality works fine and you can get it really cheap and we'll send it to you on subscription. We won't spend money on marketing. We'll do everything on YouTube. You know, just a real reimagining of the business model. And Unilever paid a billion dollars to acquire that thing. And they then Unileverified it, you know, so it basically became a typical Unilever product in in the stable. So you go into, you know, you go into Boots and Dollar Shave Club is there. So is Harry's Shave Club. So is Bob's and Jack's Shave Club because everyone else has sort of copied the idea without really thinking about what was at the core of that idea was that it delivered better value to customers. That was what was at the core. It delivered the, the product that works at the best price, convenient, you know. And th- that's what, if I were in Diageo's shoes, that, that's the thinking I would be doing is, you know, where's the value here? And for, I think, for, for most of those big, you know, FMCGs and, and drinks makers, you know, this great big global companies, they're trapped uh, on the left-hand side of the value chain, you know. So they're, they're trapped from resource to people to uh, product. So they're kind of stuck there. And they've got to get closer to the consumer, you know, at the moment, most of those products, I go into another supermarket to buy them or I buy them on a kind of faceless online platform. The brand itself is becoming increasingly meaningless, you know. And if you put that in the context of something like Loop, which is looking at how we get plastic out of um, FMCGs, fast-moving consumer goods, sorry, I should have defined that at the beginning. But uh, what they're saying is, look, you know, what we need is actually uh, reusable packaging that that is in a kind of a circular business model. So, so you use it, it goes back to the manufacturer, it gets washed out, and then it gets reused up to 100 times. But the most efficient way for that to work would be for there to be no branding on that packaging, because then it would just be super easy to reallocate. And that, I, that I think, is coming, you know, at a point at which there is no branding on the physical packaging the branding lives somewhere else you know whether that's in the heads of the consumer or it's digitally or whatever but for those big organizations that that's where their thinking needs to be what and where and how do we deliver value and is that going to last you know what could disrupt that rather than necessarily just trying to buy up everything that's threatening yes well that's definitely facebook's you know oh look looks like we have a competitor buy them Yep, <laughs> exactly. I'll stop that getting bigger. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, the, the, the sort of difficulty with this is in some cases it works, right? Because you're big enough and you've got big enough cash reserves that you can just scoop up everything. That's exactly what the big uh, fossil fuels businesses did to those uh, early renewable technologies. Buy them up, shut them down, you know, eat them. But of course, that's not that some of the pressures that, that exist around plastics, around all of that stuff, you're not going to be able to insulate yourself from those by buying up people that do it better or differently. You know, we, we've got to start to really change the way we operate fundamentally. So it's a short term, that's a short term solution for most businesses, I think. If everybody knows the Netflix blockbuster, you know, why didn't Kodak start Instagram? Are there some examples that you use where companies, big companies, have been able to somehow innovate 
and they might not even change their business model because there's some organizations I've been in and some clients of ours, you know, they've got a, they've got a core piece of their business, which is not going away anytime soon and needs to be run operationally very well. And that's how they drive the cash flow to drive innovation. Yeah. What, what are your sort of favorite examples of businesses that have done that well? Two interesting ones, I guess. So the first one is New York Times, which, you know, did just an incredibly great job of transitioning to digital by really investing and experimenting around that. So they went from, you know, the ultimate kind of broadsheet, like massive, (laughs) proper massive newspaper into creating their own kind of NYT labs where they experimented with different ways of reaching out to people. They, They did lots of amazing research and engagement with consumers, created a really engaging online platform. They experimented with different ways of running subscription models. They preserved the integrity of the journalism, you know, so they did that really well. And they actually dropped out of the Fortune 500, I think, and then went back in or sorry the S&P 500 and went back in which is really really unusual to drop out and come back you know most when we talk about disruption we tend to and again I'm sorry I'm drawing another graph <laughs> this one's in the book as well but we tend to talk about the kind of the the reducing uh, lifespan of organizations in there because there's so much disruption you know um but but yeah New York Times managed to get back in so really really successfully embracing the change and then experimenting and trusting actually a lot of younger people to experiment for them and they did that really effectively but exactly as you say Dom you know they also understood what was at the core of what they did which was high quality journalism with integrity and fact checking quality checking and all of that stuff and that there's a value to that and people might be prepared to pay for that absolutely absolutely like that yeah because their previous business model was ad supported and Craigslist turned a billion dollar industry into a hundred million dollar industry. So you've got to go looking for different value somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And then I get the other one I would talk about, which, so, I mean, there are lots of examples of businesses that have tried and failed, but I still think they're good examples (laughs) because they tell a story of, you know, someone might need to lead the charge. They might not do it successfully, but the rest of us better be watching while this is happening and learning from it. I think Nordstrom, Nordstrom is the example I'd use. I think they're now in a bit of financial trouble, but they, what they did really well in the kind of online, offline retail world, which of course everyone is grappling with how you compete with online and create an experience around offline but what they did um, in the US was this kind of pop-up miniature Nordstrom in in kind of small towns around the US where you could go in you know have a glass of Prosecco or a coffee or whatever and get involved with their digital catalogue but also try stuff on, send it back, ask for advice so so effectively what they did was they, they thought really carefully about the value that they had in the store but how to do that more cheaply, more efficiently, and more accessibly in those kind of um, those pop-up zones. So effectively, they create a kind of hybrid model, which we're now seeing lots of other other brands start to to copy. As they now, thanks to COVID, thanks to the, the shift to online, anyway, they now look at this massive real estate portfolio that they have and think, oh. How, do, how would you reimagine this? But of course, it's much more difficult to reimagine it when you're sitting with you know loads of uh, retail property which is already dropping in value than it is to think about that when they when the online transition is starting to happen, which I think they did do. Because I think they first, these pop-ups, I think they're probably about five years ago, they, they started to appear. So, you know, they'd already started to think about that. 
Well, you made me think of of two other businesses. One was Lego, mm -hmm. who made a lot mm -hmm. and had totally, you know, they they didn't control, you know, that that was sort of mm -hmm. a bit like your drinks industry. You know, they didn't know the customer. It was through distribution, and they got it back on track by, well, creating models for adults, which was a, you know, you know, three hundred and fifty three hundred and fifty pounds for I don't know the Millennium Falcon, and it takes <laughs> you know it takes all weekend, and that you know, the, yeah. but just connecting with customers, going direct, you know, you you know, being able to sell a whole long catalog of bricks because you know you get yeah, yeah. you get the thing out, and you realize <laughs> that your dog's eaten one, and then restoration hardware that took you know, the Amazon playbook and, and sort of did their own version of subscription. And now I think 95% of their revenue comes through people who pay to be part of that because they wanted to get out of having having sales and say so it was like, well, we're not going to have sales anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to sell a membership. The value is about the member benefit. So, you know, you get free consultation, you get more value. Yeah, and again, it's shifting to that side. I mean, I mean, let's not forget, Lego used to sue their own customers. If you had a little Etsy shop and you were making, you know, Lego earrings, Lego would sue you, you know. So there was a real shift. And again, it's back to that point about, you know, we, we protect and preserve our value that we've created, which is a hiding to nothing in a world where disruption is happening all the time, versus saying, well, who are our stakeholders? What do they value? How could we engage them? And in both of those examples, it's about community, as you say, you know, what, what do you want to be part of? How is that something that lasts versus something that's just purely transactional? So it's really interesting, you know, how, how many organizations, and again, we were saying this up front, but but sort of almost have a disdain for their own customer. That's not necessarily a conscious disdain. It's it's just, it's accidental because of the way that they have always done things. And, you know, on, on the whiskey example, one of my clients, the, the master blender there, actually, I, I'd, I'd sort of said, you know, what, what do people look for? What do your, your, your customers look for when they buy your product? And he said, I don't get involved with customers, you know. And you sort of think, wow, you know, that's... Um, that's not right. <laughs> you know? I find this very often when I'm talking to prospects or clients, you know, they can see clearly how to drive operational efficiency. And they can look for examples in their marketplace of people who maybe are more efficient than they are. But then when we talk about the willingness to pay drivers, you know, who is your core customer? Or oh, we've got lots of core customers. Oh, really? Probably more than one would not be a good idea. But, you know, and then it's, um, well, why does somebody buy from you and not one of your competitors? Because this competitor looks quite close to you. Mm -hmm. No idea. And it's just, they just don't know. They just don't know where they don't, so they don't know where the value is. And therefore, they're really, really you know, could easily be disrupted. And haven't and they haven't had to think about it, Dom, you know, and so you can't blame people really. It's a it's really it's a really interesting dilemma where you're, you know, you're doing well, you're making money, business is good. You know, it's really hard then to think about taking a risk to change things, you know, because you don't want to upset the apple cart. So I, I completely get the psychology. And it's it's one of the interesting things that, um, so Ruth Murray-Webster, my co-author, her, her background is in risk and change. And my background is innovation and change. And, uh, and I did previously, where I used to do investigations. So I did previously work in risk. But, but that's why it's been such an interesting conversation with her, because it's that, you know, we have to stop thinking about is this an opportunity to innovate or is this a risk that we need to manage? Because so many of the things that we're facing into now, we actually don't quite know yet which one of those they are. They might be both. So we need to take a little bit of 
thinking time, <laughs> you know, to really explore. And again, to think about that in the context of value before we say, well, actually, that, that's a risk to the way that we do things now. So we're going to try and shut it down or uh, create barriers to entry or whatever it might be. Instead, it may be, you know, it, you know and again, the, the kind of typical response is, is acquisition. Um, but actually, we might start to think, well, where could we potentially collaborate and create shared value? You know, and, and those are much more difficult questions, but not impossible. But, but you need time and help to to have those conversations and to think in that way. Indeed. Um, what is it that you know now, Alma, that you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> uh, well, I, I know now about myself that I'm way too much of an optimist. Um, and have, have, been, have been way too much of an optimist about COVID for sure. I mean, I did not think for one minute that this would have gone on for so long. Um, and so I think... I wish I'd taken my own medicine, I guess, at the beginning and really explored the range of possible futures and not just thought, everything's going to be fine, you know. Uh, but actually, you know, on the whole, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, that that it's been good to cast the eye of Sauron <laughs> inwards because it just gives you a chance to think, oh, actually, well, there are different ways of doing what I do as well, you know. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think like everyone, I wish I'd done that right at the beginning not waiting a couple of months and hoping that it would it would pass <laughs> uh-huh, okay and uh when people are thinking about packing their holiday suitcase other than disruption <laughs> game plan what books should they people take with them what have you got yeah i absolutely love a book called the luck factor um which uh, i'm just reading it's over on a bookshop over there it's dr robert wiseman um, it's just a fantastic book about, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a self-help book, which is totally not something I would normally buy, but, uh, it's, it's a book about how your perceptions, uh, shape the outcomes that you get basically. And I know that you've read this as well, Don, but he, but he works with the groups of people who self-categorize by the lucky or unlucky, and then talks about the outcomes that they achieve. And sure enough, people who consider themselves to be lucky tend to to see more opportunities, to act on them, to network more, to to be welcome, to trying things that are different, to experimenting. So it's just, it's just a great book that really quantifies that, but it's also really funny. The, the examples are great, you know, um, and it's uh, it's linked to the second book that I would recommend, which I've only just started reading, but, but I'm absolutely loving already, which is um, Darren Brown, who I absolutely love anyway. Uh, he he did a program about luck, which I think was really built on the the luck factor, um, which was great. But he's also written a book called Happy, which is a, is about you know how how we can kind of it's a bit like Serenity's Prayer, isn't it? You know how we can sort of learn to control the things we can control and, and not worry so much about the things that we can. And I think for both of those, they're both kind of personal or individual books, but they're really relevant for business as well because so many of the clients that we work with you know, they automatically see themselves as the disrupted. And I think thinking about yourself as a disrupted business really stops you from imagining yourself as a disruptor, as someone who's able to seek and find and grow new value. And that mindset shift is really important because we're now all, however successful we are right now, we're all facing into a future of, you know, accelerating constant change. So we need to be able to think of ourselves as the people who might define that new value, not the ones who are having to protect or cling on uh, for dear life to the value that we've created already. Well, and as a leader, you've got to take that, we're being disrupted, 
drops you into a victim mindset Mm-hmm. right and it's all about scarcity and and then if you're the leaders of the organization you project that to the whole company peter chap was on the podcast the uh the owner of wow and the accountancy firm he said when something bad happens inside their organization what he does is he pulls everyone together and he says okay what we need to do is we need to think what would have to be true for this thing that happened to be the best news of the year yeah yeah <laughs> and then and then you get people you know bending their sort of you know mental model to try and say well this would have to be true but then it forces you on the front foot and not the back foot and so and so it's it's exactly that isn't it it's like how do you how do you say okay we are being disrupted but how is that a good thing you know we had covid how is that a good thing yeah absolutely and, and for i mean again for some of our clients and, and some of them we talk about in the book for some of them you know that covid has been a great op- i mean it did, probably did not feel like that at the time but it has been an opportunity to 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 rethink the way that their businesses are structured you know and um i mean i, I use opportunity in, in the kind of you know it's easier from the outside in to call it an opportunity i'm sure for, for clients at the time it was really a lot of really tough decision making that they had to do but looking back on it now you can see that it was a chance to to rethink and reframe and have some have some really live discussions i think this is a really important point that what covid enabled many leadership teams to do was to have a live conversation with a burning platform where people really felt uh, what was happening and that goes back to what you and I were talking about up front about feeling imagining how you would feel if something happened you know so many leadership teams they were really feeling it and that made it easier for them to deliver the change you know because they just removed the barriers they you know they made the meetings happen whenever they had to happen you know so so there's something about that realness um that i think it would be great if we can kind of take forward from this remember how we felt in this moment you know and kind of hark back to that the next time we're considering something that feels very remote i remember i don't know week one one of the ceos who i work with said i'd been asking the it team to make sure that you know anyone could work from anywhere for about the last 12 months and they just kept telling me how hard it was and then blow me if within 24 hours it wasn't entirely possible as long as they had nothing else to do and put their minds to it and it's you know some companies managed to capitalize on that unfreezing and cadence improvement in cadence it's interesting because of course you know there's an there's an inherent unfairness in what's just happened and there are some businesses who have not been able to to do that and if you if you look around kind of locally there, there are some kind of tiny, tiny local businesses that have been agile enough to completely transform the way that they go to market, which is amazing. But there have been others in the middle who who might have imagined what they could do, but haven't had the reserves or have been actually shut down because of COVID restrictions or whatever. So, so I think you know we're always careful to highlight success is not is not always the outcome <laughs> when you when you reimagine business you know it's it's a risk you know but 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 i find it it's interesting because if i take your value lens now and i look back so earlier on in the in the spring when pubs could open up for outside yeah we went to our local pub that we would often eat in indoors before and we turned up there and they put up small tents because you could heat them and they put up infrared lamps and they gave everyone a blanket and a hot water bottle. And even though I said, no, I don't want a hot water bottle, she brought me one anyway because she said, you're a bloke. So you'll say you don't want one, but you do really. <laughs> Honestly, if you put it behind your back, you'll thank you for that. And it was full. And we'd gone out trying to show yeah. support for a local business, but thinking, 
it was so nice. I said, look, you know, can we come again next? I oh, know we're, we're booked out now for the next six weeks. And then you go to another pub around the corner where hypothermia was your own problem <laughs> and the place was deserted. And it's just completely trying to understand where the value might be and what people might be prepared to pay and what discomfort they might put. Oh, you know, how could you, how could you make it into a positive experience? That's it. Yeah. And you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine the mindset, can't you, that says, oh, you know, everything's really you know things are really and it's it's not incorrect but it's a mindset shift that needs to happen that that everything's been made really difficult for us you know it's we, we can't open you know and, and so that's the mindset that focuses on yeah, the business rather than on the customer and and exactly as you say you know just a little bit of thought about how to improve the experience for customers even if you haven't got the money to do the tents and the heat lamps if you can do the hot water bottles you know that's a that's just a really thoughtful gesture isn't it that customers feel and it creates loyalty and it's, it's all of those sorts of I think and, and again it's um you know the, the response to disruption doesn't have to be a big and costly thing uh, it, it can sometimes be about thought and communication and engagement to start that journey and then to bring customers with you and ask them to help you you know uh, on that journey or whoever the stakeholder is if it's not customers yeah well what should people do tomorrow so they're listening to this today what what change should people go and make tomorrow? The, the challenge we give people um, at the end of the book, actually, is just to is to kind of get yourself. I mean, most of us have been sitting looking at the same four walls for a very, very long time. So, you know, get yourself to, into a different environment because we know that that triggers curiosity, whether that's the park or a coffee shop or wherever, um, or your car, even. You know, just something that sort of changes the uh, changes the space around you. And just just think about on a blank piece of paper. How would you design your business if you were starting it now? You know, and, and that's just, it's an intellectual exercise. Just think about what would it look like? What would you be doing? Who would your customers be? Who would the other stakeholders be? Because you're not going to get to a perfect answer, but but just that that process of, of starting afresh might trigger some really different connections. And it's just a great intellectual exercise to do periodically. Uh-huh. Do that. Do do that. I, I mean, what's interesting, <laughs> I think, well, it is, but I was just thinking, I know some clients who have done that, something similar recently, and they sort of went, huh, well, we wouldn't have any of those unprofitable customers. <laughs> <laughs> because they realized, they realized that they were running, that the tape they were running of themselves is any client is okay, because over time, those clients grow into large profitable customers. And I challenged their perception of that they went away and ran the numbers and they realized that actually that wasn't true it might have been true at one point but it was no longer true and they had this long tail of unprofitable customers now yeah the dead dogs as the, as the, the bcg matrix would call them i think that's it it's you know it, again it's, it's, it's sort of taking a judgment-free perspective on your business as well and an assumption-free perspective where you you know they, they you might come up with something uh and again you know we we, we did this exercise with one of the airlines and, and asked them to think about what would their business be without planes, you know, uh, just as a really different way of thinking about how they did things. And of course, then then there was a really interesting conversation about what was the value of the brand? What else could it be associated with? You know, how would we operate it? What different products would we sell? Would we still have the same customers? You know, so suddenly you've got a, a really different perspective on your own business and you might not go out and wholesale create that new version, but it will trigger different ways of thinking and different ideas and opportunities to do things that you would otherwise never have had the time or the energy to think about. Eleanor, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Thank you for giving us your time today. Likewise, yeah, it's a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.